Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to bring this one to you today because I'm going to be honest, some of you are going to disagree. Some of you, it's going to stretch everything you thought you knew about a controversial subject. Some of you are going to jump right in, salivating at the chance to expand our mind. But all of us will come away different. And that's the point of this show. We're talking about what is formally referred to as mental illness today. And our guest this week takes a stance that goes against a lot of the conventional wisdom, if you will. But if you're willing to just open your mind, hear him out, and think through it, regardless of where you come out, I think there's more to this subject than we know. Our guest this week is Dr. Chuck Ruby. Dr. Ruby is a clinical psychologist and the author of the forthcoming book, Smoke and Mirrors, How You Are Being Fooled About Mental Illness, an insider's warning to consumers. He is also the executive director of the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry, also known as ICEP. You can find out more about ICEP at psychintegrity.org or you can go to isepp.com. I'm just going to go ahead and give it to you straight. The primary premise of this discussion and a lot of what Dr. Ruby talks about is that there is no such thing as mental illness. However, that does not downplay how impactful, how troubling, and how real the things we experience are when we are given the label mentally ill or having a mental illness. There's a lot of nuance here, so don't judge too soon, but I just want to give you a quick little lead in there. I 
thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope you will too, and I'd like to hear about it. You can email us. We're at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Patreon. By the way, if you're not signed up for our newsletter, how would you have known that you can ask questions directly to our guests? If you want that opportunity, head on over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And if you support us, you have access to our guests. Imagine being able to ask Dr. Ruby whatever you wanted. So again, email us smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or sign up for our newsletter at smartpeoplepodcast.com so you can be kept in the loop about who is coming up on interviews, submit questions, connect with us, and more. Let's get on with it. We've got a long one because it's one of my favorites of all time. We are talking to Dr. Chuck Ruby about the truth behind mental illness and his new book, Smoke and Mirrors. Enjoy. Tell us about your primary viewpoint about mental illness and the message you're trying to get out. Uh, The basic idea is that the thing that we call mental illness, the things that get diagnosed as mental illness, while they are quite real and uh, they can be quite devastating to people, nonetheless, they are not illnesses. They're not true illnesses, as in diabetes, high blood pressure, cancers, and things like that. Instead, the phrase mental illness is a figure of speech. It's mixing two different categories of language terms, mental and then illness. Mental is obviously a mental idea. Illness is a body idea. So it's mixing these two concepts of body and mind uh, into one. And when you do that, the phrase becomes figurative. It's not literal illness. And so that is the main point, is that these problems that get diagnosed as depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, all of them are not literal illnesses of a person's body. And you can't literally have the mind be ill because the mind is not a substance. Is it fair to say that mental illness was called that because at a time they believed it was a physical illness of the brain? I've always heard this concept that most mental illness is caused by some lack or imbalance of chemicals, in which case I feel like that's as much an illness as a lack or imbalance of your blood or something like that. Is that where it started? And is that also not true? That's an interesting question. You asked the question when, basically you're saying, when did the term mental illness come about? When was it created or started to be used? I don't know the answer to that. I never thought of that. But I do know that if there is a chemical imbalance, in the brain of uh, neurochemicals um, or any other things in the brain, any other kind of structures, if there's some kind of defect or malfunction going on, that would be a literal illness. It, it would not be in the bailiwick of psychiatry. We already have a medical specialty called neurology that deals with diseases of the brain. Uh, if there is a chemical imbalance, that would be a disease of the brain. A neurologist would take care of that, not psychiatrists. Psychiatrists are, um, they've always been thought by neurology as a sort of a bastardization of a medical specialty. They really have no bodily organ identified as their focus, like all other true medical special specialties do. So 
Um, you know, oncology has cancer problems in the body and neurology has the brain and nutritional science has the, the minerals and nutrients in the body. It's all, all medical specialties have some substantive thing about the body that they study. Psychiatry doesn't. And if psychiatry ever did find that these things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, if they were truly caused by some identifiable or, or even theorized malfunction of brain, that they would no longer be the specialty that would handle that. It would go to the neurologists. So this is what's fascinating. Do neurologists actually look at neurotransmitters? Is that something they currently test for if you go in for some issue? I don't think they test for it because there's no evidence that neurotransmitter malfunctioning causes any kind of true disease process. For sure, maybe they do. I, I don't know if neurology does. My guess is they don't, again, because there is no, there's no substantive theory about neurotransmitters causing some kind of disease, or an imbalance or a malfunctioning of neurotransmitters. A neurologist studies the organ of the brain. A psychiatrist, although they don't study an organ, I know you're not saying they don't have a specialty. I think you just believe their specialty is the mind. And what it, with that being the case, if the mind is something that is not physical, as far as we yet know, then you can't have an illness of something that is not physical. You can still have an issue. You can still have problems. We get that. But psychiatry is meant to help with the mind and therefore should not be considered reshaping the brain in any way. Is that fair? Yeah. Psychiatry's focus is the mind and the mind isn't physical and it never can be because of how we define what mind is. Mind is the personal experiences of each person separately because we can't, you know, we can't experience each other's experience. So when we refer to mind, we're referring to a personal mental sensation that includes things like thoughts and emotions and memories and so forth. But those things aren't in the brain. And this is the bizarre part of, of the mystery of mind is it feels like we and our mind are inside of us and in particular in our head. But if we cut our head open and looked, we would never find any mind things such as memories, thoughts, wishes, sadness, the color blue, uh, anything. You won't find them in there, even though they seem, they feel to us like they are in there. They are non-substantive experiences, and by definition, they cannot be literally diseased. U using the, the term mental illness, again, it's, I said it was figurative, it's very similar to the term spring fever. Mm. The spring fever isn't about a real fever that you can detect on a thermometer or heartbreak. Heartbreak isn't about your heart breaking. I do know there's a recent, um, there is a recent uh, uh, writings and thinking about how the heart can actually literally have some breakage because of intense sadness. That's different than what the, the what is commonly known of as heartbreak. It just means intense sadness is what that means. Hmm. So that's what mental illness is. It's in that category, spring fever and heartbreak, not uh, typhoid fever. Now, what I know of psychiatrists, and we can get into my journey, but I've gone to some. I, you know, I had panic attacks for a long time. A lot of the listeners know, but they actually don't really 
in my experience, care about your story. It's they want to know what is going on so they can diagnose it and provide you with a pill that shapes the chemistry of your, I know they used to say brain, but now with all the things about the gut, it affects your body. Why are psychiatrists put in charge of dispensing medication that has a direct impact on your physical body when in reality their practice is set up to help with your thought process? Oh, um, well, the reason they're put in, in charge of that is because their view is that your thought process problems, in other words, the symptoms, the so-called symptoms of mental illness, are caused by bodily malfunctioning. And so they give you the chemical drug, the prescribed chemical, and they say this is going to correct the bodily malfunction that is causing your troublesome thoughts. But the problem with that line of thinking is, not put aside the idea that if that were true, neurologists would handle that, not psychiatrists, but the problem with that line of thinking is that your troublesome thoughts, that what they're doing is they are they are a priori deciding that troublesome thoughts are diseases or illnesses that the body causes. The trouble lies with the definition of mental illness itself. It's no other illness is defined this way. Mental illness only exists of symptoms, but no bodily disease process that causes those symptoms. Mm. If there were bodily disease processes that caused the symptoms, then neurology would have it. If it were the brain, that was the malfunction. Mm -hmm. uh, if it were, you know, for instance, hypothyroidism, uh, endocrino endocrinologists handle that. Hypothyroidism, one of the symptoms is lethargy and it's confused with depression. So people say <clears throat> hypothyroidism causes depression. That's not true. Hypothyroidism causes the symptoms of hypothyroidism, which is lethargy. And Hormones can help to change that, but it's the thyroid malfunction that is the key to that problem. That's the disease basis. Mm. With depression, there is no disease basis. There are chemical changes that occur in the brain, no doubt, that are associated with depression, but there are chemical changes in the brain that are associated with everything we think and do. It doesn't make what we think and do illnesses. Right. So, for instance, piano players, their brains look different than people who don't play the piano. <clears throat> people who have been diagnosed with depression, their brains look different than people who haven't been diagnosed, slightly different. Mm -hmm. But we wouldn't call piano playing an illness, so why are we calling depression an illness, a true illness? Right, and I want to get into why this just calling it an illness matters, but let's go to this analogy you just used. As somebody who has struggled with something that was seemingly of the mind, you know, these mm -hmm. panic attacks, the only reason I would call that or was okay with it being considered an illness as opposed to piano playing is because the results were things I didn't want. Whereas in a piano player, right. it's, it's fine, right? So I kind of wonder from this perspective, say we look at the depressed brain and say this is different from the non-depressed brain and people don't want depression. Can we use drugs to make the depressed brain look more like the quote unquote, normal or happy brain. Yes, we could do that. And so what is the either problem with that? Or I guess you're saying there's not a problem with it. We just can't call it an illness. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I, I, keep in mind what I said at the outset. Yeah. The, the thing we call depression, even though and we can get into this later if you want, but the diagnostic category depression, 
uh, and all the other diagnostic categories are, from a scientific standpoint, unreliable and invalid. And that's that's significant, uh, but that's admitted um, in the industry that the, the diagnostic guidelines we use are not valid and they aren't reliable. So we really shouldn't be using them, but there are no other others to use. Um, but those things are problems, roughly speaking. So the thing called depression is a serious problem, can be a serious problem. It's just not an illness. So definitely we would, you know, we would look at it. We would help the person. We would try to help the person feel better. Mm-hmm. And if we wanted to, if the person wanted to, sure, they can take a drug if it seems, if it makes them feel better, that by all means, I have nothing against that. It's just that the drug is not correcting a disease process that's making them feel bad, like it does with diabetes. So diabetes is caused by uh, insulin production problem, and so the blood sugar is excessively high because insulin isn't uh, being secreted to reduce the blood sugar. So you take a medicine that will reduce the blood sugar. It's the high blood sugar level that's the disease process in that situation, and the drug corrects the disease process. It just doesn't mask the symptoms of diabetes. It actually corrects the foundation of diabetes. I see. Yeah, with depression, the drug just addresses symptoms, so-called symptoms, because there is no disease basis. I see. Okay. I think the paradigm shift, and maybe listeners are thinking the same thing. I know many of us have always been told that what these drugs do is alter the chemistry of the brain from a incorrect state to a correct state, from an unnatural state to a natural state, whatever you want to call it, right? But you are explicitly saying that has actually been proven not to be true. It's not fixing a chemical state the same way a high blood pressure medication is fixing a chemical state. Is that fair? It's actually creating a chemical imbalance. It does the exact opposite that it's advertised to be doing. It's advertised as correcting a chemical imbalance, bringing a chemical imbalance, in other words, a disease process, which isn't true. But anyways, bringing a a imbalance of chemistry into balance is what it's said to be doing. What it actually does is it takes a naturally functioning brain and it creates a chemical imbalance by changing the way the brain uses those neurochemicals. Okay, let me ask you this. Let's let's do a real world scenario. Okay, say like in my case, I'm 23 or whatever. I'm going along. Mm-hmm. I'm anxious, but I'm stressed. All these things, but it, life is what it is. And then one day, boom, out of nowhere, I hit the deck, pass out. You know, I always believed. Okay, that is something that broke and needed to be fixed. And then I always wondered, maybe I did lack some chemical that I needed more of or something like that. It felt like something broke. Right. And I think I understand what you're saying. Keep in mind, something could have broken. Uh, We don't know at that point. If you pass out, that can be due to a lot of different things. And uh, like I do with all of the clients that I see, I encourage them all the time to take care of their physical well-being, especially sleep, food and exercise. Mm -hmm. Those three things are are absolutely necessary in order to uh, come to a you know a sense of contentment in life. You're not going to be content if one of those three things is out of whack. But um, you know, so also get a to get a physical to make sure that your poor feelings aren't due to uh, hypothyroidism, uh, 
low blood blood pressure, uh, diabetes, uh, nutritional deficiencies, things like that. Those are real. Those problems are real disease processes. Right. As long as that's ruled out, then what's left isn't an illness. It's it, even if it feels like you broke. Hmm. Uh, in that sense, when you say something broke, you, you're talking figuratively. If it's not about something in the body that actually broke, right? As if something in the body actually broke, then a physician would take care of that, not a mental health provider. What's left is becomes basically uh, personal struggles of living in difficult times, um, personal, spiritual, existential, economic, political, all those kinds of problems that we encounter in life do cause us distress. And it, they're supposed to cause us distress. That distress is a sign that something is out of whack in life, and it helps us orient toward the thing that's out of whack so that we can... Um, address it, change it, correct it in some way, the thing in our life that isn't working, but it's not something in our body that's not working right. Okay. That's kind of a good baseline to set because that would make all the difference in the world. If you believe this idea of there's a chemical imbalance, you, you go to a psychiatrist, they give you a drug, it fixes the chemical imbalance, then that would fall in the definition of an illness. But the fact that we don't, it's been proven that that is not the case essentially, right? I just want to make sure. Uh, as a scientist, um, which I, I am, I'm a social scientist, mm -hmm. I'm trained as a psychologist. Mm -hmm. Um, that's when you, you can't disprove things. So you said it has been proven that is not the case. Oh, that's right. Science work. Science works by proposing theories based on evidence and then testing the theory. So if the theory is a chemical imbalance in the brain causes mental illness, those who propose that theory are obligated to present the evidence. Right. They, they have yet to do so. And okay. every attempt that they have tried has failed. Okay. I think that's a great kind of foundation for that. So I want to then transition into, we keep harping on this idea that calling it an illness is the main problem. And my question is, why is that such a problem? Well, because you take a non-medical problem and subject it to the medical profession's tools. It would be like if I, um, I didn't like the car I bought, so I go talk to my physician and see if he can help me deal with my angst over the car that I bought and, uh, and how much money I'm spending on it. That would be silly gotcha. I think, to ask my physician to help me deal with the distress about the car that I don't like, but that I'm paying a lot of money for and I can't get out of it. Real world, world problem, but it's not a medical problem. Who should it then go to, right? Let's say you break and you go to the physical doctors, which I went to many, and they were like, you're fine. At this right. point, we, by our best diagnosis of 2000, you know, whatever at the time, okay, time to go to a psychiatrist slash psychologist. Is that the idea from there? You need to go to somebody who can help you with your thought process. Yeah, it's, that is typical in the medical profession that if uh, the medical doctor can't figure out what the problem is, they either call it psychosomatic or, you know, and they sort of label you <clears throat> as kind of a troublemaker because you're making this up, that kind of an idea. It's mm -hmm. psychosomatic. Or they prescribe a psychiatric drug, even a non-psychiatrist. In fact, I think most of the antidepressants are prescribed by fa uh, family doctors and primary care doctors, not psychiatrists. Um, or they refer you to see a psychologist, which I am one, or a counselor or a clinical social worker or those professions, depending on the state that you're in, um, 
that deal with counseling and psychotherapy. What do you think causes it? Is it a thought process that can take such hold that it changes the way in which you perceive reality? Yes. Um, actually, the, the psychology profession considers what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, if you've ever heard of that phrase. Oh, for C sure. CBT? CBT. Uh, that is sort of the premier uh, and most effective uh, psychotherapeutic technique to help people. It sounds kind of lofty. It is quite common sense, though. It Basically, CBT is we pay attention to your cognitions, your thinking, and your behaviors. And then we, we sort of look at that and talk to you about those things and notice how your cognitions and your behaviors affect your sense of well-being. And when you don't have a sense of well-being, in other words, when you are diagnosed with depression and anxiety, we sit down with you and we talk about how your thought processes and how your behaviors are contributing to that sense of unease. That's all cognitive behavioral therapy is. And, and just to get back to it, I just want to make sure that if, if you are saying that human struggles are not caused by a chemical or physical issue, then would you be saying that these struggles are caused by an issue in the way we process information or emotions? It's the, it's, it's the way we react to emotional fluctuations in life. And, and by ah. the way, it's, I find it interesting, and, and I've, I've noticed this before, but when something problematic happens, we always look for the causes. We start wondering, what causes that? So yeah. what, is it a chemical imbalance, or is it, what, it, you know, is it a, a moral transgression? Is it a uh, you know, cognitive behavioral issue? We tend not to ask that question when things are going great. We don't say, geez, I wonder what causes that. We only say that when things go bad. So the, the same things that cause us to have good times are the things that cause us to have bad times, in essence. And it's our thoughts and how we behave and react to the inherent, natural, and expected, and meaningful emotional fluctuations of life that humans go through. And now a quick break from the interview for this week's sponsor. Nine times out of 10, shopping online beats going to the store. I don't know about you, but I don't like leaving my dog at home, getting in my car, heading to the store, looking for parking spots. It's just such a hassle. That's why I shop online and use Honey. Honey makes online shopping easy and saves me a ton of money. For example, just the other day, I realized we needed a new frying pan. So I went to Macy's.com because I knew they were having a Labor Day sale, found the frying pan, added it to my cart, and as I was checking out, Honey said, hey, let me check all these codes out for you. So I went through a bunch of codes, and lo and behold, it applied a code for 20 additional dollars off. So not only did I get the pan on sale, but I also saved an extra 20 bucks. Just think, the average Honey user saves about $126 per year. That's like 25 cups of coffee. Over 10 million people are already saving with Honey. Honey has over 100,000 five-star reviews on the Google Chrome store, and Time Magazine calls Honey basically free money. So listen up. There's really no reason not to use Honey. It's free to use, installs on your computer with just two clicks, and it'll save you money so you can treat yourself to something nice. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash smart. That's joinhoney.com slash smart. 
Start saving some money today. And now back to the episode. Okay. I like that thinking. Now, let me ask you this. Um, my wife, for a period of time, worked with what was deemed, you know, I don't know how to call it anymore now that we're, the whole idea of this is to not call it mental illness, but by most people today, they call it mental illness, right? Like, so schizophrenics, people who are really impacted to the point where it seems like almost an alternate universe. I remember her telling me a story about somebody was terrified that something was going to come out of the shower drain or the wall. So they didn't want to take showers at that level of impairment. How can we simply say it's an issue with their thought patterns and we need to just talk to them about it? In my opinion, when we talk about anxiety or even depression, this makes sense to me. Having dealt with it at a pretty severe level, I also know that I, I could sense my thoughts were not really, they weren't helping, but they weren't even grounded in a lot of reality. You know, it gets into this circular loop. But for something like schizophrenia or bipolar, these ones that are on the very extreme ends, in my opinion, I feel like that's a harder pill to swallow, no pun intended, that it's only based on a thought process, which is within our control. Right. I understand that. And that's because those are extreme cases. Um, so, for instance, we just saw a few mass shootings recently. Right. Those are extreme situations. They're very harmful, obviously. Uh, they frighten a lot of people because they do happen and they are devastating. And so there's a tendency to resort to the idea that mental illness caused those shooters to do what they did, whether it's schizophrenia, bipolar, or whatever you want to call it. Um, incidentally, by the way, we ISEP is very concerned about the possibility and probability that those kinds of shooting incidents uh, at least are brought on to some extent by the use of psychiatric drugs. Yeah, I've heard about that. Alcohol and drug use are is one of the risk factors of violent behavior. Uh, and so since psychiatric drugs are chemicals just like alcohol, heroin, uh, LSD, and the body doesn't know that they're prescribed legal or recreational. Anyways, when you are under the effect of a psychoactive drug, your your risk of being violent is enhanced. So, as it, again, incidentally, I wanted to mention that that we're concerned that shootings, uh, you know, to what extent are they happening because people are more and more being prescribed psychiatric drugs? Mm -hmm. um, but the these are extreme cases, and so it does look that way. It looks like well. People would not do crazy things unless something was really diseased about their brain. But right. th consider this. How many people believe there's a God? Mm -hmm. There's, I think it's like 80 some percent in this country. Okay. What proof is there that there is such an entity, a being? Sure. There isn't any. But we accept that. And we don't consider that an extreme thought or a crazy thought, even though... It's fundamentally no different than a so-called schizophrenic thinking something's going to crawl out of the shower drain to get them. They, uh, when, when voices are heard, that's considered extreme, but it's no more extreme than the belief in, a, in an invisible God that controls the world and, and all the other, um, all the other uh, tenets of most religions Many of them are kind of like that. They're unprovable and they kind of go counter to science. Mm -hmm. but we don't consider those crazy. Why is that? It's just because they're more common. But mm -hmm. from a delusional standpoint, you know, from a 
reality testing standpoint, standpoint, there are there's very little difference between the two. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that people who hear voices, people who um, are afraid of being attacked by things crawling out of the shower drain. Uh, there's nothing wrong there. There clearly is something wrong, but it's not wrong with their brain. Right. It's wrong with how they perceive life, what they believe, and what they what they think they have the capacity to do. And that, I mean, the one thing I want to address, the idea of religion, it's hard because I tend to take a similar stance to you, so I kind of would just say, yeah, I agree. But I've always interpreted when people say, oh, God spoke to me or etc. I've taken it as not a literal hearing of a voice. Now, I'm sure that happens, but I guess if if somebody came to me and said, hey, Chris, I had a full on real conversation, saw God, talked to him. He told me this. I would question that. And this could be offensive to people listening. So when I say question, I don't mean judge. I just mean I don't understand how that's possible. So maybe the way I've interpreted that is different, but I've just never really thought that anyone truly hearing voices can be seen as of sound mind. Yeah. I mean, it depends what you mean by sound mind. Yeah. If you mean disease uh, or healthy mind, then no, not literally. That's, it's not about disease or health. Mm -hmm. Um, if you mean by of sound mind, that they function effectively in society, then yeah, that can, that can be a problem. Mm. They wouldn't be then of sound mind. If that's what you mean by that phrase, it, it might, again, again, bringing back to this main point, it's not about a brain disease. It's right. about problems in living, how we react to the emotional fluctuations of living, what we do about it and how that works for us in society. That is the key, the utility of what we do. There are, I, I know people also who have said, I talked to God. I actually know people who said I talked to the devil and I actually saw him and and he was in my car and we talked and he you know he warned me. I've talked to people who um, said that they woke up at night and started levitating off their bed. And these aren't people who I've seen in therapy. These are right. people I know. Now, did all that stuff really happen? Who knows? How would I ever know? I mean, why is my ass, uh, my access to so-called reality any better than yours? I have my own, I, you know, I'm trapped inside myself too, just like you are and everyone else is. Right. We have an obligation to react to our worlds that we, that we witness. And there's no way for any of us to say my access to reality is the true way and yours isn't. What about the idea that norms are determined by the masses. So if I'm sitting in a room with 10 people and nine of them say, yep, there's 10 of us here. We all look like this, you know, et cetera. But one of them says, no, there's 11 of us here because the devil is sitting right next to you. Wouldn't it be a fair assumption to say the nine who are experiencing one reality and the one who's experiencing a different, that one is off? In what way off? Incorrect, I guess. No. Okay. Off, yes, in a sense, it's abnormal in a statistical sense. But what if nine of them saw the devil and the one didn't? You know, if you're, so you go mm -hmm. to a mental hospital and you go into a day room where there's nine patients there, and you walk in and sit down with them, and they all say, the devil's sitting next to you, and you don't see the devil, then who's off? 
Okay, that's fair. I guess expand that. And I'm genuinely interested. Expand that scenario to, you know, 7 billion people on the planet. I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's probably 6.9 billion that have never seen the devil. In that case, would you be able to say the 0.1 who have are incorrect? No. Okay. And there's no, this is me talking. Sure. There's no way for you or for me or any of those 6.9 billion people to get outside of their perceiving systems, to mm. see the world as it, quote, really is, and they go back inside to check to see if their view is consistent with the real view. We can't do that. So we are only left with our view, and there is no way to, to determine correctness. There is only consensus or non-consensus. Okay. And, and whether that view... Uh, works for you in society. I have a, I'm writing a book right now. Um, it's called Smoke and Mirrors, How You're Being Fooled About Mental Illness and Insider's Warning. And it, in part of it, um, I give the example of what if I tell you, and I tell everyone and your listeners that I'm an alien and I was actually implanted in my mother's womb by an alien civilization 62 years ago. And I really believe that, and I believe my job on Earth, according to my alien masters, is to convince you all that mental illness is not really illness. What pro what is the problem with that? What would you think the what's the problem with that? If I've done relatively well as I have in life, and and I'm open about, it, I tell you this. Right. So what's the problem? Yeah, I I don't know I, on its face. Yeah, I, I don't know. Not I'm not accurate. I mean, how would you ever determine if I'm not? That that's not true. Right. So my point is this, is that, uh, and by the way, I do not believe I'm an alien. Sure, sure, sure. No, I understand. Yeah. But my point is that I believe lots of things. In fact, some of these ideas I have about mental illness, many people think are crazy. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. And I'm probably going to get labeled with some mental illness disorder, like delusional disorder, mm -hmm. by some of my more orthodox colleagues. But if I believed I was an alien and I told you about it and I wasn't instructed by my supervisors to to uh, to kill people or anything like that, but just to live among you peacefully and try to help the best I can. What's the problem with that? Right. Why do you tag that person ill um, when they're functioning quite well? They just have a belief similar to how some people believe in God and that they may be on a mission from God. And they're you know, this book here is the the rule book of life. And I'm. I'm following it because God said to really, what's the difference between those two things? The difference is, and typically what happens is when something harmful occurs or when something, it, that kind of a belief system is not working for them in life or harms other people, then it's not a problem of illness. It's a problem of interpersonal relationships right? and harm, maybe violence. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, I definitely get that. I think it's in the gray area that this becomes difficult because if nine people believe the devil's not in the room and one does, that doesn't become an issue until the person who believes the devil's in the room kills everybody else. Now it's an issue essentially. But yeah, definitely an issue, but it's not a mental illness. Issue. Right, right, right. And I, I, I realize you're saying that. So taking kind of that extreme, cause I, I realize that a lot of this and a lot of this idea or belief or theory probably stems from the fact that, well, we have dubbed, this an illness so that we can, I don't know, because societally we're scared of it or we want to outcast or we want to define 
I don't really know. But my question, though, is more along the lines of what about when people experience things that science, our current science, says is not true? Because what it tends to feel like is we're saying perception is reality. If somebody's perceiving it, then that is their reality, which therefore makes it real. But what about the argument that no reality is something that can be scientifically understood? And if you make up a person in the room, we have science that says this person is not physically here. But we don't. Okay. We don't have science that can say that person is not there. We, all we can do is we can ask people, what do you think? Is that person there? And if nine out of 10 say, no, I don't see anyone, we assume that's an accurate reflection on reality when it's not. It's consensus. There's no other way to verify whether something is really real other than to ask somebody. Huh. You just, I mean, I mean, sort of. It just seems a little too meta in that I feel like, you know, for example, a human, as we know them, are comprised of these different body parts and skin and all that. So if that thing is not in the room, then by definition, the human can't be there. I don't know the science behind it, but I would imagine that humans emit some kind of electromagnetic radiation or something. I don't know, some kind of energetic radiation. So that has to be testable by all current scientific measures. And if you tested that room and it didn't show that energy, wouldn't it be safe to say that that energy did not exist in that room? Therefore, that person didn't exist in that room. I'm not sure you can do that with people. Okay. Energy. I don't know. But yeah. I mean, I, all, all scientific instruments basically are extensions of our senses. Right. So, yeah, there's a way to test if someone's in a room. You look. And if you look and you don't see the person, then you assume there's no person in the room. But when the person next to you looks and sees a person, says they see a person, I'm assuming they're being honest, um, then, and there's two of you, then who's, who has the, you know, the corner on reality? Right. They're, they're, you know, it's it's all about this idea that we are stuck inside of ourselves and we cannot see the world how as it really is. We can only see it, each person, as that person sees it, whether we're using uh, an X-ray machine or whether we're uh, using infrared goggles or something like that. A person makes that decision. It's always a person, right? A person makes that decision. And, and that kind of answers what my next question was going to be, which was, okay, say we can't measure a human, but for example, we know cells exist, but we can't see cells. But at the end of the day, you're saying, well, we do, we just use technology to see those cells. Yeah. A microscope. And therefore it's still up to the person or people observing through that technology that are determining if it's real or not. Correct. Okay. Wow. Yeah, there's, there's it's a real mind trip here. <laughs> Getting not not too far off the point, but we are getting into some of the weeds here. That there's an analogy that I've used that I actually I stole it from um, somebody else who wrote a book called the the, the Tree of Knowledge: um, uh, Biological Roots of Human Understanding. Two people, Maturana and Varela. Anyways, they use an analogy to try to describe this, and they 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 propose this: each person is like a a, a submariner living within their own submarine but they don't know they're in a submarine. All they have access to the outside world is all the instrument panel that they have, the gauges, the sonar uh, screen, uh, the dials over here, the levelers and so forth that, that are in submarines. So, you know, if you're in a submarine, 
you can't see outside the submarine. You you assume what's out there based on what the gauges say. And that's what they, they suggested this analogy to understand this trappedness that we are all faced with, that we are inside each of us, our own submarine. We can't get outside the submarine. We can't look through the periscope. There is no windshield. And we furthermore, we don't even know we're in a submarine. So when we see each other, we're actually looking at our instrument panel. We're not looking at something outside of us. Now, that's hard to, to grasp that. But biologically, that's accurate. It's actually as you were saying it, I was grasping it fully and I'm looking at a wall and I had this quite terrifying moment, actually thinking <laughs> you're right. I mean, the only way I know what I'm floating in here, what I'm sitting on here is because I am feeling it through instruments. I really love that analogy. I mean, my pain receptors or my you know visual spectrum or whatever it is, is the only way I know where I am right now. Mm -hmm. But if, yeah. the, but if those things were off in any way, I'm making up. Wow. It's kind of like the matrix. It really is. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you had right. to have thought that in the past, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So we have, we have five gauges in our submarine for the five senses, the five traditional senses. And by the way, I recognize that the touch sense has been subdivided. So, I mean, I've seen places where they talk about 10 different sensations, right? But, you know, the, the five basic ones. And we have a, we have like two others. One's a thought gauge and one's an emotion gauge, maybe. And everything we know about the world, every single thing is based on looking at those gauges inside the submarine. But we think we're looking out through a windshield at the outside world and we're not. Right. I, I love that. Analogy. You know, the specific nerve energies of when when light hit, hits your eye and the, the optic nerve, it stimulates the optic nerve and it travels back to the occipital lobe of the brain. And it's when it that occipital lobe of the brain is activated that we experience vision. It's actually occurring in our head. Sure. But it, but but here again, here's the mystery of mind. We could cut our brains open. And we're never going to see any of that. Right. Well, and that's what I was thinking to carry this analogy forward a little bit. In this analogy, doctors or the medical profession is working on the gauges and the, the submarine, but the thing experiencing the submarine is not identifiable. And it's not even, and it's not even truly in the submarine. Oh, right, right. You, even if you open the submarine, you can't, you can't pull out the person who's looking at the gauges. Yeah. If you, and if you cut a person open, you won't find them inside. Right. But it, that's the. I, I do think it is a good analogy to try to get a, a bit of a grasp on this concept of reality. Right now, you know, we can go on for decades debating about reality and access to reality and the, what's called the uh, idealism versus the realism philosophical model of reality. And we don't need to go there. I mean, for, yeah, for the, of for the concept of mental illness. Right. This is sufficient. And um it, it does. Uh, I think it does highlight the idea that the key to the problems that we have called mental illness isn't let's fix the disease process since there is no disease process to fix. It is how well do you function in society and how is this working for you? Well, see, and you oh, decide that. nobody else does. Right. Well, one of the things I'm really struggling with is when you say it like this. My issue is mental illness is not an illness because there's no identifiable, testable problem with a physical body part, a physical organ, a physical being. 
which is essentially or, what you're saying, right? Or even yes, or even theorized. Okay, yes, or even theorized. Because there are some there are some diseases that we accept are are diseases, but we can't test for them either. Like Parkinson's, you can't. There's no test to test for Parkinson's while a person's alive, or Alzheimer's. So it's you know it's postmortem autopsies can demonstrate that the person had the particular problem in the brain that causes Alzheimer's. But while they're alive, we just assume that the symptoms we notice are due to some kind of deterioration of the brain. And then because we know from postmortem autopsies that uh, there are some literal disease process in the brain, we're assuming that person has that process. Well, I want to tackle that idea of Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, actually, because that's interesting. But going back to this idea, if if you take that stance, mental illness, not an illness because of what we just said, and it's not theorized or proven, then how can anyone refute that? What I always like to ask, what would your greatest critics say about that? Would it be about the semantics of what an illness is or would they actually be arguing that, yes, there is a physical malfunction that we're fixing? Both. I, I, what happened right now, what the orthodox system presents as evidence of disease typically is uh, brain scan uh, research and genetics. So it is true, as I said earlier, that brain scan research does reveal that um, people who have been diagnosed with mental illnesses, their brains look different than people who aren't diagnosed. And also with genetics, there are genetic differences between people who have been diagnosed with mental illness uh, labels and those who haven't. Those two lines of research are you probably the most that's used to counter what I'm saying. But the problem is, as I said earlier, difference is not the same as disease. When when we do things in life and our brain activates, if we do those things chronically over time, that brain will look different than someone who isn't doing those things. Right, so right. I, yeah, so if I live a life of chronic passivity, which is basically depression. I'm trying to shut down and, and, and escape from the pain that I see in life. And I do that over time. My brain is going to be, have a unique signature pattern. Uh, and even over time, the brain can physically change, by the way, it's called brain plasticity. Yeah. Neuroplasticity, it, right? Right. A brain is used in a particular way. It can, it can become uh, structurally different sure. too, pattern and activation. That isn't the same as disease. It just means that the brain is being used in a particular way. So that's my counter um, to, to those brain scan research uh, studies, that the difference that is shown isn't disease. It's just difference. Same thing with genetics. When we do things chronically, what we do affects our genes. It's called epigenetics, the study of epigenetics human behavior has a feedback effect on your genetic um, composition. It doesn't mean, though, that those genes are diseased. They're just different because of how you're living your life. All right, smart people, time to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, ShipStation.com. And I want to ask, have you ever thought about selling things online? Do you currently sell things online? If the answer was yes to any of these, you have to be aware of ShipStation. It's the fastest, easiest, and most affordable way to manage and ship your orders. Listen to some of these things. So no matter where you're selling, whether it's Amazon, Etsy, your own website, ShipStation brings all of your orders into one interface. So it makes them easy to manage. 
And you can do it from any device, even your cell phone. It works with all major carriers, including USPS, FedEx, UPS, even Amazon Fulfillment. So you can compare solutions right there. One of the best parts is they offer big discounts on shipping costs. So any business, no matter the size, can get access to the same postage discounts that are usually reserved for Fortune 500 companies. Right now, Smart People Podcast listeners can try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use the promo code SMART. Here's the kicker. You do not have to put in a credit card. There's no payment going through. There's no automatic renewal that you have to worry about. But to get this, you have to go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in SMART. That's ShipStation.com, then enter promo code SMART. ShipStation.com. Make ship happen. Now let's get back to this interview. Okay, okay. Uh, Wow, hold on a second. All right. This is really hitting home, and I'm having one of those moments here. So let me talk this through. Let's make an assumption that genetically, I am predisposed to utilize more of my limbic system or to have more of a fight or flight mentality or to be on edge more, you know, evolutionarily so that we, I didn't get eaten by a tiger. Let's just say that. So Mm -hmm. I come out of the womb evolutionarily or genetically predisposed to have more thoughts that are about danger than about creativity. We'll say Mm -hmm. If that's true and everything I know, and I do know a decent amount about this idea of neuroplasticity. I mean, the way you use your brain, the thoughts that you have, the you're building these mental patterns that physically change the shape of your brain so that your brain can access those patterns more easily, essentially, then it makes sense that you would then at some point get to your life where this thought pattern, this thought process has become so ingrained. It has both changed the shape of your brain but it is also delivering results that in 2019 are not desirable. And you would go, you know what? This is broken. I don't like it. Doctor fix it. And then they give you a drug that says, Hey, this will fix it. When in reality, it's just masking it. The brain hasn't changed shape. And then we all go on our merry way. Right. How do you yeah. feel about that whole thing? I, I, uh, I think I agree with you. I, the, the drugs that are given, the, the only thing they do, uh, their, their main uh, mechanism of action is to either sedate or excite your central nervous system activity. So most of them are, and I say sedate, not in a technical way, but in a, in a generic way, most of the drugs that are prescribed by psychiatrists sedate you They're, They, they prevent you from feeling the emotions of living. And so you are not then likely to react, um, with, uh, mental illness to those emotions that are painful because you don't feel them, but you can't feel anything. And that's one of, that's why the so-called side effects too, is a, uh, a lot of people report feeling very, very terrible sensations from these things. The stimulants like Ritalin and Adderall and those things excite central nervous system activity uh, artificially and they help you pay attention as they would with anybody. But um, yeah, I, I agree with you that those drugs that are prescribed are masking one's experience of the problem. They're not changing anything brain-wise, genetic-wise. Well, I guess over time, uh, drugs can change the brain and genetics, just like any behavior can change the brain and genetics. Right. That's what I was going to say. You could say, well, these drugs help. But yeah, if you 
change the thought process for long enough, your brain would then, again, with that plastic, the idea of it being plastic, it would change the shape to one that's more desirable. So we could say that although you might be genetically predisposed to a reality that you don't like or that society doesn't like, it doesn't mean, or as far as we know, there's no way to fix that other than potentially through maybe it's CBT. I mean, other than really changing the thing that caused it in the first place, which is this long drawn out thought process. Yeah, and it, the way you couch that made it sound like a treatment that we can change it with CBT. Um, that's misleading. Okay. CBT is just a fancy way to say thinking and behaving. And so the same, you would do the same thing you did to get to the problem in order to get away from the problem. You would think and yes. act over time. That's why, you know, things are difficult to change. You know, any habit is difficult to change and living is a habit. The way we live, the, the things we do, the way we think, how we react to things is largely habitual, as I said earlier. And so the way to change, if I, if I habitually react with shutting down in the face of emotional pain in my life, what I would then have to do is pay attention to that habit, thoughts and behaviors, and do differently when I feel emotional pain in my life. That is CBT in a yeah. nutshell. Now, it's a lot more detailed than that, and obviously it takes a long time to make that change because most people aren't, frankly, they're not willing to make the change. Right. You know, we have a thing in, in psychotherapy called therapeutic resistance. It's a term borrowed from medicine, but basically what it means is there comes a time in psychotherapy when the person who is asking for help realizes that the help they're asking for, the change that they say they want, they really don't want because it is so frightening to go there. Even a, even a simple example of smoking cigarettes. I used to smoke cigarettes like a fiend when I was younger. Mm -hmm. I know how horrible it is trying to stop. I would say to myself, I want so much to quit smoking, but I just can't. Now, that, that was an illusion that I just set up for myself. It's not true that I can't, and it wasn't true that I just so much want to quit smoking. The truth was, I wanted to keep smoking, but I didn't like how it made me feel, and how people were complaining about me. But I just wasn't willing to quit buying cigarettes. I mean, it's not a, it's not a complex solution to that. Right. Smoke cessation. Everybody knows how to quit smoking, even people who've never smoked before. It's simple, but it's difficult. And so people come to therapy for, you know, help me quit smoking. And we get to this place where they really don't want to quit. That's the problem. And it's until they start grappling with that concept of, what am I willing to do given the way the world works and given the, the, the necessary consequences of stopping this behavior? Am I willing to go through that? Yes or no? Now, would you believe that's always the case? Because I think this could be a really tough sell. If somebody comes with crippling depression, how often do you see that they actually don't want to cure themselves of the of the depression? And how often do you see that they just literally do not have the tools or the current ability without help to cure themselves of that depression? I think in all cases, they have the tools, they know how to do it, they don't want to do it. What? Now, oh, man. Yeah, let okay. me explain. Okay. I have been criticized very strongly in the past by people for saying this, what I'm saying now, but I don't want it to mean, because this is what most people take this as, that I'm saying it's a, 
uh, a moral weakness on their part or a character flaw. I'm not saying that in any means. And I'm also not saying they're just not trying hard enough because that that phrase sounds like a moral critique of them. I'm mm -hmm. not saying that. What I'm saying is um, mental Ill, the things we call mental illness. Let's take depression. And by the way, you're throwing in a lot of figurative terms that your, your listeners are going to take literally. Okay. Depression is not literally crippling. I know what you mean by that phrase, but it's not, it does not take away one's ability to do differently. Huh. Um, none of the mental illness diagnostic categories are crippling in that literal sense. They aren't disabling either, by the way. And I get a lot of, a lot of bad feedback from that comment too. Mental disability is just as figurative and metaphorical as um, mental illness. It's okay. Not, well, we're going to have to talk about that, but I want you to keep on this point. Okay. Okay, so uh, with depression, what's happening is, again, the person is resorting to an escape strategy of passivity. That's the basis of this, roughly this thing we're calling depression. I notice in my life that I haven't got to where I wish I would have gotten to. My marriage is bad. My, I hate my job. Uh, I'm getting older. I'm going to die. So whatever, the, whatever the emotional pain is about life, these existential crises we face, mm -hmm. And in response to that pain, I try to shut down so I don't feel it. And so I stay in bed or I give up doing things that I used to like to do because life is meaningless to me now. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't take people up on social invitations because I just want to be left alone. I'm trying to hide from my life. I'm trying to shut down in passivity in order to not feel or notice that pain. Now, it works really well in the immediate term. It is soothing to go back to bed, pull the covers over your head. But what happens in the long term when you do that kind of a strategy is you add to your problems. So now you start feeling guilty for staying in bed or for not going out with your friends. You start getting lethargic because you're, you're not active. You're laying in bed and sleeping all the time. And that just contributes to this pile of pain that you are then trying to continually escape from. And it's a downward spiral in terms of depression. Anxiety is the opposite. It's an upward spiral of trying to avoid usually a fear by becoming very, very hypervigilant and prepared and planned and uh, aware of possible threats in your life. And it works well in the immediate sense in, in, this, in terms of you feel like you're doing something about it. Yeah. But you have to keep this feverish pace up. You know, you have to turn on all your radar and look everywhere all the time for everything, every possible threat. And obviously, when you do that, you end up getting panic attacks and even psychosis and things like that. Okay. So that's what mental illness is. I, I always tell people to think of it in terms of we do mental illness. We don't have mental illness. We don't get it. We don't catch it. We do it. It's how we react to the emotional pain in our lives. Yeah. So if we are reacting to emotional pain, and that's depression or anxiety, we can not react that way. We can react in other ways. And you, okay, and you believe. And you have the ability. We to. all have the ability to. We just don't have, we just don't have the willingness in the moments of choice. And I want to distinguish between two kinds of willingness here. There's, there's a willingness where I say things like, you know, I want to lose weight or I want to quit smoking or I want to do better in school. Those are really you know, those are said in the moments when the choices don't have to be made yet. They're aspirations, they're hopes and wishes. What's more important is what you're willing to do in the moment of choice. So when I'm lighting, reaching for a cigarette, 
what am I willing to do in that moment in terms of smoking? Am I willing to stop or not? And in my case, I wasn't, but I didn't notice that. I, I thought it was more controlling me than I was doing it. Right. And all the mental illness categories can be thought that way in more subtle ways. But fundamentally, what I'm saying is that there's not, if there's no disease process in the body, and there's not, mm. none that has been shown yet, then there is no disability in a literal sense. Right. It's very, very difficult, very understandable why people would do this. I think we should have compassion for people who are doing this and trying to help them. But until we get to this concept, this idea that we're actually doing in the moments of choice what we are willing to do. We're not doing what we're not willing to do. That's the key, I think. Sure. And I understand that. There are so many things there. I, I am really excited to go into more because, again, I remember talking to my friend who put me in touch with you and he said, you know, the reason I love this message is because I believe once you truly sink into it, it's more empowering than anything else. And Absolutely. I can, I can truly see that. I mean, I can feel it to some extent having What's dealt with these things. What's it's empowering, but it's frightening at the same time because it's so empowering and because it tells you there's really nothing standing between you and the solution beside yourself. Right. And again, I don't want to, I, I, I want to say this in a way that doesn't give the impression I'm moralizing because I'm not. I mean, I, I understand when people do what they do and they have a right to do it, even if we call it depression or anxiety or drug use or whatever it is. And I think they always should have that right, um, that we in the mental health profession should not be the ones dictating their choices. We shouldn't be the ones telling them, you have to do this, you have to do, you need treatment. That's not for us to say. Those are all personal decisions. And I, I get you're not trying to moralize it. I mean, again, from somebody who's experienced it, I don't feel it that way. First, let's go back to this idea of they're not crippling or disabling. Okay. Um, I am open to understanding it because you can experience a thought process that is so intense that it inhibits your ability to do something. Not your ability. Right. Your willingness it affects your desires and it affects your willingness. Okay. Yes. Okay. And, and, you know, going back to, I mean, I'll never forget the night after I had my first panic attack and I went to the ER and they told me nothing's wrong and all this. I remember sitting on the couch. I was actually at my parents' house and I remember being like, I can't go to work tomorrow. I mean, I can't, you know, but thinking back, I still went eventually feeling that way. I have been present in a panic attack in a place I didn't want to, but have just kind of forced myself to. And that yeah. is just a difference in willingness. It's you're right. It's although it might, it does feel because most of these evoke a physical sensation. It doesn't prohibit. Yeah. Emotions are a physical sensation, right? Don't try to distinguish between physical and mental sensations. It's all the same, right? It's just the question is, what's the referent? Uh, so, yeah, I, I get that. And as I told you, when I smoked, I truly believed I did not have the ability because I tried. But I, I just wasn't paying attention to the meaning behind all of this. Um, and if we tell ourselves, you know, we, we know this for sure, that if we believe something, we're more likely to act in cons consistent with that belief. So if I believe I can't change, which is, and by the way, the mental health industry tells you you can't. Uh, not because you have an illness, right? but if I believe that, then I'm going to live my life consistent with that belief. And many people do. We have a lot of people on mental disability roles mm. um, that 
and I'm, I'm not I'm not saying people who are having difficulties like this shouldn't have some kind of assistance. I think they should, but it's not a disability. It's a huge problem, difficult problem, understandable problem, expected, natural human problem, but they can be helped by the government while they're dealing with that problem. But right. They, they I, aren't being helped by being labeled with depression and given drugs and 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 by the way, getting um, you know their their pay they get the social security disability pay um, is a disincentive to change. Right. They 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 realize that if they so called get better they may not have this this money. Now I'm not saying all people want to be on disability. Again, don't get me wrong. Right. But it is a disincentive to change, and it's harmful. I mean, getting labeled with a mental illness diagnosis in your life, especially if you're young. It can be devastating to your life. Right. It, it prevents your options and opportunities in life very clearly in a lot of different areas. Well, and in the same way, I believe that medication can be a disincentive because it does, for many, change the symptoms. Yeah. But you're right. It definitely, I mean, everybody knows it doesn't cure them. Nobody has ever said, at least I've heard, oh, you take this Zoloft or whatever for five years and then you're depression will go away. I mean, that just doesn't work. So it's clearly not a solution. It's, it's a mask. It's a fix. I mean, it does work. It's like a life vest for someone who's drowning, right? It has a purpose and it can keep you afloat, but it's not the same thing as learning how to swim. Right. And, and you, and you can decide though, if you know, you want to wear a life vest all your life, or do you want to learn how to swim or do you want to just stay away from the water? Um, so it, you know, it has a function. It does have an effect, but it's it's misleading. It doesn't actually address any problem that the person's having, other than the sensations they have. Imagine you were the one who got to determine how every single human thought about mental health, about human existence, about emotions, whatever you want to call it. You were the one who got to like inseminate our brains with a certain thought process. What would you want it to be? Um, I guess that the problems that we call mental illness are real, but they are not about something wrong in the body that can be cured or corrected. Rather, the problems are natural and expected human reactions to emotional pain that can be very problematic and the person can do otherwise, given enough support, given um, uh, enough motivation on their part to become different, although it is a very extremely difficult process to do that. And, you know, keep in mind, everybody who's listening to your podcast right now is mentally ill, including you and I. By definition, formally, officially, we are all mentally ill. The difference between those of us who went to seek help for it and those who haven't yet sought out help um, is that you just haven't been officially given a diagnosis, but you already meet the criteria in the diagnostic manual for a mental illness. And that's because the diagnostic manual is written in such horoscopic terms that any problem, I don't care what it is, any problem can be labeled a mental illness to include, and th this is a formal diagnostic category, by the way, that I'm going to say here now, unspecified mental disorder. Huh. That is a formal 
diagnostic category. It used to be called mental disorder not otherwise specified. And with the most, most recent edition of the manual, it's now called unspecified mental disorder. Now, that's scary. And, and by the way, there's no criteria for that. It's just if it's a problem and it doesn't meet one of the other traditional diagnostic categories like depression and schizophrenia, you can be diagnosed with unspecified mental disorder. Now, health insurance might not reimburse for that, but it's still formally a diagnosis. Do you think the biggest harm in that is that anybody who wants to can convince themselves that they have something truly physically identifiably wrong with them and therefore can act accordingly, which is often seek out the formal medical industry, seek out drugs. Yeah. It, it's, uh, over the last few decades, we've seen this, 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 uh, blossoming medicalization of human living just generally, not, not within mental illness alone, but even with, uh, other problems in living. So high blood pressure, for example, the typical answer is drugs, diabetes. The typical answer is drugs rather than addressing the lifestyle factors that bring that on. But in mental illness, all of those problems are lifestyle factor, uh, lifestyle problems, and they're medicalized. And so people want the quick fix of some sort rather than to address these very difficult and entrenched problems that uh, they are going through and that, and that feedback to cause them a lot of uh, continual emotional pain. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Have you thought about talking to someone but are unsure of where to start? BetterHelp makes it easy to connect with a licensed professional counselor, caring professionals specializing in the issues that you want to talk about. Join BetterHelp and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Schedule secure video and phone sessions or text your therapist worldwide and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. Listen, it's really easy to use. It's available on desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. And there are two pricing plans available. You can do an all-included plan, which is one weekly scheduled live session and unlimited messaging, or a messaging-only plan to which you can add scheduled video or phone sessions on a cost-per-session basis. It's a truly affordable option, and Smart People Podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code SMART. If you've been wanting to talk, you can get started right now. Go to betterhelp.com smart. Simply fill out the questionnaire and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. That, that makes perfect sense. I appreciate you going through that because I just want to be really clear. One of the things I've struggled with is, okay, we're just calling it an illness. What's the problem? What would we want to know? But I've finally, and the listeners might be like, thank you, Chris, but I finally got there and why just even the word, but it's much more than that matters. Let me ask you something you mentioned earlier I made a note of that has stuck with me is you mentioned things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Uh -huh. Those you would, I'm assuming you would consider a disease, a physical disease, a, 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 an, an illness, correct? Yes. And interestingly, though, they are listed in the mental illness manual, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Really? Yeah. And then there are other kinds of real diseases that are listed in the manual, too. My suspicion is they're thrown in there just to kind of give the flavor of disease to everything else that's in the manual. So like breathing related sleep disorders, that's in the, that, that is a formally a mental illness. Why, you, wait, why do they do that? I don't know for sure. My suspicion is 
to make the manual itself look medical. Oh, oh okay. So when you see that alongside depression, then it gives a sense that all oh, depression's medical also. I see. Yeah. So yeah, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and a bunch of other different real diseases are listed in the diagnostic manual as formal categories of mental illness. But people don't go to a psychiatrist for Parkinson's. That's my point. Yeah. I don't know why, other than what I su suspect, I don't know why they would be listed in the mental disorders manual. I mean, it's not, you know, if there's a disease that has mental and behavioral symptoms, that doesn't make it a mental illness. There's lots of diseases sure. like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, but urinary tract infections, if you've known elderly people who get them when they get them a lot, especially in nursing homes, it causes them to start getting kind of psychotic. Well, that's not a mental illness, and it's actually not psychosis per se. Um, it's the symptom of a urinary tract infection and how that affects one's uh, awareness. And that, though, isn't something a psychiatrist would deal with. You would want a urologist to deal with that kind of stuff. You need an antibiotic. You need to, you know, be cleaner down there. Um, you know, things like that to reduce the chance of bacterial infections. So why, you know, why don't they have urinary tract infections in the diagnostic manual? It would make just as much sense as putting Parkinson's in there. Right. We'll take the diagnostic manual out of it. So if, if Parkinson's is a formal disease, it's still, though, we don't necessarily know the organ of its origination. Therefore it almost seems similar to that of mental illness in that something happens which has a downstream effect and we can measure that downstream effect, but we can't understand its origin. Well, yeah, there is, there are, um, the origin is known in Alzheimer's. Okay. Uh, Parkinson's, I believe it's the same, but at the least there's, pretty sound theory about what causes Parkinson's. When, oh, okay. You know, so for instance, if I tell you, and I'm being honest with you, if I tell you my head hurts really badly, I have a sharp pain in my head, we can reasonably theorize that there's some kind of malfunction going on in the head, even if we can't find it with a test, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's what my point. We wouldn't call that a mental illness just because we don't know what's causing it. I that's see. Pretty good. It makes sense and it's in terms of theorizing the cause, that when one feels pain in the body in a particular area, that means something's out of whack in the body. But the things that we refer to as mental illness aren't about that. It's about emotional pain and about behavioral problems. I see. That's, that's why you brought up Parkinson's, because the difference is, although we don't know the origin, we can theorize on what it is, and that theory kind of makes sense. As opposed mm -hmm. to, we don't, as you said earlier, we don't necessarily have a theory for, to support the mental illness idea. Right, there are no. Gotcha. What about the fact that mental illness can lead to physical issues? Does that make it... Does that make it a true illness? Yeah, like I'm thinking of Parkinson's that way, right? And again, I don't know anything about Parkinson's, so forgive my ignorance. But well, Parkinson's is theorized to be due to a uh, malfunctioning in the... Um, and the dopamine production in a particular part of the brain, and thus the difficulty people have with movement. They can't control movement, voluntary movement. Okay. So, the, but your question is a good question. What about the, how, how the things we call mental illness can lead to physical problems in the body? And mm -hmm. that's true. It can. So if someone 
stays in bed for a week at a time because of quote unquote depression, that can affect metabolic processes in the body, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, that doesn't make the depression an illness. It makes the subsequent problem an illness. So for instance, if I hit myself in the uh, thumb with a hammer when I'm nailing a nail, does that make nailing an illness? No, it just, even though the thumb's broken, it doesn't make nailing an illness, you know, right. using for an illness. Right. Or if I, uh, playing football, if you play football and you get a head injury, that doesn't make playing football a behavioral disorder. Yep. There are cons there are real medical consequences of all behaviors. I want to kind of tie this into something that's really striking me. I mean, I'm really enjoying this conversation because not too long ago, we had a guest on our show. His name's James Cooney Horvath. He's a neuroscientist from Australia who just totally blew my mind. And his whole belief, his whole thing that he teaches and he talks about and he studies is that we form our realities through the way we think. We, we genuinely, his belief is that I can see a red car and you can see a blue car and both of them are right. And the reason they're both right is because we perceive them that way. So that's the only thing that kind of matters. And I'm having this kind of flashback to that conversation with him. And it perfectly dovetails onto what you're talking about because, and I'm kind of, again, realizing it, it seems like the keys to the kingdom, which is if what you are theorizing is that we can change these really difficult thought patterns that we call depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, et cetera, we can change them. Then we could also say, what do we want our experience to be? And then come up with a thought process in which we can change our brains to make that a reality. Yes, I, I think I'm following that and I agree with that. Um, I would say we're not changing our brains. That's well, we may be, but that's not the key. We are changing our perception, right? What happens in the brain and what we experience are two separate things. Uh, they aren't the same and they don't cause each other. I agree with you that. And, and I probably agree with him is we, we do create our realities, uh, not only voluntarily. So, you know, we can arrange our life a certain way to make our reality a certain way, but we create our realities just in biologically. Um, what brain we have to work with is involved in presenting to us what the reality is. Yeah, these are natural, expectable, um, understandable human reactions, both cognitive reactions and behavioral reactions to the emotions of living. In, in other words, the emotions aren't the problem. Emotional distress is not the problem in life. The problem in life is how we react to that emotional distress. Right. We, the point isn't to eliminate emotional distress, because if we did, we wouldn't know what's important or meaningful to us. Mm -hmm. Our meaning comes through our emotional sensation, not intellectualizing. It's about emotionality, what feels right in the gut. That's where our meaning comes from, ultimately. And if we got rid of it, like we try to do with psychiatric drugs, then we're aimless. That's why I felt like a zombie when I took Paxil. I didn't have any care or concern about things that were had been important to me before. And I didn't like the way I felt, but I didn't care about that. It was just, it was really a bizarre feeling to me. Yeah. 
So we're nearing the end of our time, but there's a couple of things. This has been such a great conversation. There's a couple of things I feel we couldn't end without me covering. And the first is because this is real and you've said it multiple times. I've experienced it. A lot of people experience it. These uncomfortable emotions, however we want to dub them, they're very, very challenging. What is your recommendation to somebody who's listening and is either experiencing it themselves or knows somebody who's experiencing something to a large extent? You know, I know plenty of people who have been impacted by this depression, anxiety, et cetera, and, and truly believe that, you know, they don't know where to go. So what do you tell them? Wow. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that's, there's enough time to say it all. But, yeah. Uh, it, well, one thing is important is to, if you realize, recognize that all mental illness diagnoses categories, every one of them is an attempt to escape emotional pain. If you, if you start there, it gives you a little uh, bit of a roadmap of what to do about it. Um, so how else would you reduce that emotional pain besides staying in bed or besides drinking or besides, um, you know, creating a new reality, which is what schizophrenia is about? Well, you, you could be with other people and talk to other people about them, and it doesn't need to be a professional. In fact, we, it, I think the research is pretty clear over the decades that it isn't the, the degree, the training, the license of the professional or the, even, the, even the therapeutic technique they use that brings good results. It's the chemistry that forms between the two people. And if there is respect, mutual respect, uh, if there's patience, if there's a trust in the process, those things lead to better outcomes for people. So you can do that without a professional. If you have a good friend, a family member, um, it all depends on whether that friend or family member is willing to wade into this with you. And that's where many aren't willing. And so that's where the professional comes in. Um, but it's important not to isolate, not to escape, but to try to stay engaged with life, to keep moving nonetheless, even when you don't feel like getting up and getting a shower. It is incredibly important to get up and get a shower, get something to eat, go for a walk, call somebody, you know, to keep your life on track. Say somebody is in such a state where they feel crippled, right? Even though I know we've talked about it, but we can still feel that way. What is your thought process on taking some sort of drug to get you to a place where you feel you can then participate in society in a way that allows you to make progress? I think that's a, a reasonable solution. Uh, the thing I want to make sure people understand is what that drug's doing. And the, the mistake is thinking that it is correcting something that's malfunctioning in your body right. or in your mind, because it's not. If, it, if, if a person wants to take a drug and wants to ask their doctor to prescribe a psychoactive drug, and if they realize what it's doing, what it's not doing, if they realize the potentially harmful effects of taking that drug long term, and there are some significant harmful effects, um, but still decides to do it anyways, and they and then they find um, that it's beneficial. I'm all for that if they they get to choose that. Uh, so I'm not anti-drug in that sense. I just I'm I'm more pro informed consent, which is one of the supposed to be the um, a big um, you know principle we live by, where we are obligated to fully inform people about what's going on with them. 
and what might be helpful. And the problem is with psychiatric drugs, the prescribers aren't fully informing people about what those drugs do and what they don't do and what the harmful effects are. How much of this misinformation, as you see it, do you believe is conjured or carried forward by special interests, by monetary interests, political interests, things like the, you know, pharmaceutical lobbies? A lot of it. Uh, I think that's, you know, the pharmaceutical power or pharmaceutical company power is is incredibly strong. Um, it was estimated there are two pharmaceutical company lobbyists for every member of Congress. Um, so they have a lot of uh, money at stake, billions of dollars in profits at stake. Uh, and they, they rely on the idea that people think mental illnesses are true diseases and that their drugs are curative. So uh, it would be naive to think that that isn't having an effect. It clearly is. Um, but I think at the prescribing level, I think most people who prescribe just don't understand this. They're not trained this way. Right. Most uh, physicians prescribe. Medical schools don't teach this. I'm glad you mentioned that because the one point that I forgot to ask is, how did you come to this conclusion? I'm sure you weren't trained to believe this. I'm sure you were probably trained to believe quite the opposite. Maybe I'm wrong. So how did you come to this? Yeah, I went, uh, my doctoral training was through Florida State University in the 1990s. Um, and yeah, the, the, the implication was mental illnesses are illnesses, just like diabetes and cancer. That was the implication. It was never stated, though, that I can remember. So it's almost like it, we didn't know to ask the question because we didn't know there was a question to ask. We just assumed it was illness. And it wasn't until later for me, I had the, the opportunity to work with a, a mentor who thought outside the box. And it was that's what started my questioning of some of the basic principles of the mental health industry. And over time, you know, hearing about the works of other people who are uh, questioning it, um, that's how I slowly came to take on this approach. Okay. And tell us about ICEP a little bit more. You mentioned it at the very beginning, but tell us about the organization and then what you wish people knew about it or potentially did with information about the organization. Well, ICEP, again, it was started in the seventies. Um, I think it didn't really catch on much until the nineties, uh, when it became more of a, I guess, a larger organization. Um, and its purpose initially was to provide a haven for professionals who challenge the, the orthodox viewpoint. Um, as you may expect, when you challenge your own industry, you can uh, be the target of a lot of criticism, both uh, criticism from colleagues, but also formal criticism from licensing boards. And so because of those challenges, the organization was started to give the those people who um, felt that they were trying to be more ethical a place to go to, to demonstrate, listen, we're not a bunch of quacks here. We are serious scientists. We are compassionate people. And we truly believe using scientific evidence that or using a scientific approach that the way the mental health industry is operating is very harmful to people. And 
So that's why we got together. And um, it, it, we've always remained a small organization. It's all not it's all volunteer nonprofit. Uh, we don't take any funding uh, with some minor exceptions here and there for specific projects. But um, we, we just try to trumpet the message that mental illness is not illness. Um, the the forms of medical model treatment can be very harmful and there are alternatives for people to get help with these problems if they start thinking about them as non-medical problems but as natural human reactions to living right well and i want to make sure the audience has this we'll link to it as well but the website you can either go to psychintegrity.org or you can go to isepp.com and you also mentioned something i see it right here on the front page you have the annual conference in baltimore uh, in baltimore maryland october 11th through october 13th of this year of 2019 correct yes and we're going to have some uh, people can go to the website to that particular page and they can see the lineup of speakers we have. We do have some very um, uh, impressive speakers this year, uh, one of which is Irving Kirsch, who is a psychologist who has done a lot of work in uh, uh, looking at the placebo effect of antidepressants, um, showing that most of the effect that comes from antidepressants is placebo meaning it's not the chemical effect of the drug that's helpful it's the expectation that the people have about the drug that can be helpful sure the problem with that is the drugs are advertised as you know this chemical will cure you when that's not true it's a placebo in psychotherapy placebo is a good thing because placebo means a positive expectation and a good outcome and a faith in the process that you expect to get better well, that's the whole point of psychotherapy is to help people trust that they'll they can get better. And it's not advertised as I have this treatment that will cure you. That's not what psychotherapy is. Psychotherapy is a process where we try to encourage faith in a process with people. Um, we encourage them to try different ways of being and encourage them to stick with it and so forth. And that's all placebo. But that's a positive thing. Right. You know, in my experience and talking to many people, it's hard to find somebody to talk to about this that you trust and believe in their process, whether that person be a professional or a friend. Mm -hmm. Do you have any recommendations, maybe specifically from the professional standpoint, if you believe in the general ideas put forth in this episode, how to find somebody who will vibe with that, who will help you in this way, as opposed to maybe steer you towards a chemical treatment? Uh, that's a, a tough question, and that's one of the hurdles that people have. Uh, obviously, they can go to our website, and we do have a listing of professionals on that site that endorse our views, uh, but they're limited. So I, we have a couple hundred on there, I think. Okay. Uh, so they can always, always go there. They could always also, um, when they seek out a therapist, ask the question, interview the therapist first on the phone, even if they have to pay for a session, but make the session uh, an interview of the therapist to find out how the therapist sees these problems, what the therapist intends to do. Uh, don't worry a whole lot about the credentials. I mean, obviously they should be licensed, I think. That's maybe a, a good general rule, but not to worry about whether you get a psychologist or a social worker or a counselor, but find out 
you know, how, well, how do they how do they conceptualize these problems? And if they see them as illnesses, just like diabetes and cancer, I'd run. Mm. Um, you're looking more for someone who has more of a humanistic uh, outlook on these things that that doesn't think you're disabled, that doesn't think you're crazy or that there's something fundamentally wrong with you in your character or your body. And if and above all, as I said earlier, you have to have a comfort with the person. If you get a sense that the person isn't listening, doesn't respect you, doesn't take you seriously, fire them, get somebody else. So it might be a, a trial and error process. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people that do go from therapist to therapist because each one they go to, either they just don't feel heard or um, whatever is suggested doesn't work for them or they don't like to do it or whatever it is. It's okay to fire your therapist. Right. They work. Too, not the other way around. Right. All too often, you know, all too often it it feels like we're beholden to them. That's not the way it is. Right. Well, Dr. Ruby, first, thank you so much. Second, thank you for your time. And third, I really appreciate you. I mean, you're one of the few guests we've had on, and this isn't by design, it just happens that, you know, you truly are just trying to get this message out. I mean, you have a book coming out. It's not out yet. Maybe when it comes out, we'll have you back on. I'd love to do that. But you're sure. really just taking what you believe, the knowledge you've gained over the years, both in a formal education system and outside of it, and trying to help out the world or at least help people think differently, which is the point of this show. I know I have a lot to think about after this, and I that's why I enjoy it, is to try to understand different perspectives to make a more educated perspective of my own. And so I really appreciate you doing this and coming and talking with me for, for this extended period of time. It was my pleasure, Chris. Thank you. Episode 332 is in the books. That was Dr. Chuck Ruby. Hope you enjoyed. We'll get through some quick Smart People podcast housekeeping and then you'll be on to your next podcast in your playlist. If you ever want to reach out to Smart People Podcast, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you'd like to support Smart People Podcast, you can head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. Now, if you really want to help out the show, you can help us out monetarily you can support us through our Amazon link at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon, or you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. Any level of support you provide will greatly appreciate. And lastly, if you want to stay up to date all things Smart People Podcast, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we will see you all next episode. <laughs>